Alrighty, folks, we are back with your favorite podcast show of the week. This is Location Weekly. It's episode number 477, and we are recording live on Tuesday, August the 11th. Uh, Abriana, how are you? I am hanging in there. Still working in the bedroom, you know, living the dream. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. You know, it's another week, uh, another show, um, some interesting news, uh, you know, in, in our in our world. And, uh, you know, school's almost back and baseball's back and, you know, whatever, just trying to, uh, you know, stay connected and stay on top of everything. My Maple Leafs have been eliminated, so I'm not happy about that. Um, but We're the clinging to anything that is like normal, right? <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they they they're always eliminated, right? There, there's hope, and then there's not, and then it's it's over, and then, but there's always the wrap. So there you go. We can we can kind of you know be happy about that. So there you go. So that's that's where I'm at. Um, so we've got four stories for you this week. Uh, we did have a guest, but he had to reschedule, so we'll have him next week instead. Um, and uh, so as usual, I'll let Abriana kick us off. All right. Well, uh, this is a very similar story. We've been hearing a lot of these stories lately, but another company is joining the identity link, identity, uh, you know, solution, graph, panel, whatever you want to call it. Um, and this comes from Newstar. So Newstar, we know them as having a ton of consumer data um, through various acquisitions over the years and a lot of different business that they have. Uh, I think it was like Targus that they even had acquired back in the day. Um, so they're launching their version of this identity graph and it's called Fabric. Uh, so, you know, for them to be launching this makes sense because they have, like I mentioned, they have a ton of data uh, that they have kind of streamed together uh, over the years. And so they are really doing this, they're saying, to improve omni-channel measurement in the post-cookie world, which is right around the corner here. Um, you know, we see a lot of companies that are scrambling to try and put something together, offer, you know, their version of, of what this um, identity graphs are going to look like, how to streamline this, how to measure media and digital advertising dollars uh, when cookies are gone. And now, you know, with the deprecation of the IDFA and what those implications are being, you know, there's lots of shifts happening. And so this is yet another one. Um, so this will interact with their one ID, which is their identity resolution system. And really the benefits that they're touting are um, cookie-free omni-channel marketing measurement, consumer data enrichment and segmentation, media management and onboarding um, and identity resolution. So, you know, I don't think there's anything really exciting like yet. What I'm excited to see is what's happening like six, 12 months from now, you know, who's still hanging on, who's getting the most uh, new customers, where are those customers moving from, um, you know, like how is this beneficial, what's the lift and increase that they're seeing, or what's the difference in the cookie-based measurement to this new approach that these companies are offering like Newstar. So, you know, Fabric, I like the name. I think that's uh, a, a pretty cool name there. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, like there's a lot that's going to work itself out in the wash that's happening between technology changes, uh, advertising industry changes, COVID changes and the environment, um, you know, so there's just so much shift that's happening. Like we don't know where any of this is going to fall, in my opinion. 
But what I like to see is that there's more and more companies that are thinking ahead of things, trying to uh, put themselves in a in a good position to be ready when all of these things start to happen, and uh, hopefully, you know, not be uh, be more proactive versus reactive later on. So, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a company we've been tracking for years and years. You know, in the LVMA world, um, you know, they're uh, I think maybe perhaps better positioned than some to kind of bring a solution out in in this in this area. You know, as you said, many are trying, many are attempting to figure out, you know, how they build some sort of identity-based solution in a post-cookie world, um, but not all are going to survive, right? I think that's the reality uh, of, of where we're going. Um, and I think, you know, perhaps Newstar is, is one of those companies that can, you know, weather the storm and come out with something here that, you know, can help the industry because, you know, they've been at it for so long, they've got the breath, they've got all the other acquisitions that they've done over the years to kind of, you know, give them that uh, sort of, uh, you know, beachhead and, and that sort of capstone to kind of work with, um, you know, to kind of build upon. Uh, so I think there's a strong foundation, I guess, is what I'm saying, uh, that enables them to do this. It's not just, hey, we decided to put something together and we've got a solution now. Um, you know, there, there is strong underpinnings here. Uh, for what they're doing, um, you know, I think I think these companies are correct in trying to find a solution and propose a solution and put a solution into the market. I still I'm with you. Like 12 months from now, who knows? Like you know what the regulatory framework is going to look like, um, you know, and whether or not even these solutions are going to be viable. Whether consumers are going, what consumers are going to say. You know, um, and ultimately the the legislators are going to say about linking all these data sets together, and you know, still somewhat identifying, you know, people, right? Um, I don't know, right? I, um, you know, I was uh, I don't know if you saw the Wall Street Journal piece that uh, that we put out um, just this week. So Byron Tao, who's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, does a lot of writing on you know how government is using this data in perhaps. Uh, what they might think are appropriate, but from a consumer point of view, may not be so appropriate uh, ways. Um, and so, you know, I look at it and I and I, and I go, okay, um, this is interesting. But what are the where are the protections still yet for consumers? Right? Even in this post cookie world, there's still got to be you know the right disclosure, the right consent, the right you know sort of articulation of value um, in terms of how you're getting the data in the first place. And so, you know, I still think, you know, whether it's the way we've been doing SDKs, collecting data, or we're talking about, you know, matching, you know, in a cookie-less environment, I think there still needs to be a proper disclosure type of arrangement between, you know, the company and the consumer uh, around the use of the data. And so, no matter what, I think that needs to be front and center in everything that we do. So that's kind of my thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think that it's I always say that this is it's a very interesting time right now where we have legislation really doing things that is ultimately empowering the largest tech giants that there are and it's and it's not uh, allowing the smaller you know to medium-sized players to stay in the advertising space however at the same time we have government that is clearly using the same da data in ways that is quite questionable um, to consumer privacy, you know, when it comes to tracking protesters and 
and illegal immigrants and things of that nature, you wonder like, where do you draw the line? Right. So I, I am right there with you. I think that, you know, what is, what is good for, you know, advertising, which really is what has powered free internet and free uh, news and, and applications um, for so long is really changing. And like, they are, you know, I think that a lot of the legislation and privacy acts are pressuring the wrong areas, right? Um, and so I think that it really is going to be up to consumers to decide what's right for them. But how we do that is a very big question. I don't know that anybody has like a streamlined view into this is the, the steps that you follow. Um, it's just another one of those unknowns right now, but it will be interesting to see how, how these things fall into place. There you go. All right. Moving on to our second story. So Apple has made uh, another interesting acquisition uh, in the last week. They've acquired a Canadian company uh, based out of Montreal up here called MobiWave. And I think this is very, very cool. Um, so these guys, um, what, what MobiWave enables is for any iPhone in this case to be turned into a mobile payment terminal. And so we've been talking a lot, especially in, in kind of the COVID world that we all live in about the importance of, you know, touch-free tap, you know, based payments and those kinds of things. And MobiWave is really sort of, you know, at the forefront of all of that in that not, we're not talking about taking your phone and using Apple Pay to kind of tap on the terminal. We're almost talking about the reverse of that, whereby your phone is the payment terminal now. And so anything that has an NFC chip in it can be tapped onto your phone and to complete a transaction. So I, I'm thinking about, you know, uh, Uber drivers or, you know, anything like that where, you know, people have just got a phone instead of them having to carry another terminal device, you know, or anything else like a, a separate piece of hardware, you know, if they could just use their own phones to, as, as the payment terminal and somebody like me, you know, the pizza guy shows up and I can just tap my NFC chip card onto that person's phone and the payment goes through. That's brilliant. It's easy. It's, it, you know, it, it, it's seamless in that way. The other interesting thing I thought about this acquisition, so apparently they paid about $100 million for it. They didn't disclose uh, any other terms and they've kept the team. Um, but prior to this, MobiWave had done a pilot program last year here in Canada with Samsung and Samsung is an investor or prior to the acquisition in MobiWave as well. So that's kind of interesting that here you have Apple uh, in, in acquiring a company that is, you know, has uh, investors uh, as uh, Samsung as an investor. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, and Apple seems to be on a, you know, an acquisition tear lately. Uh, you know, they, they go in these spurts. And uh, so they've uh, previously acquired in the last number of months, uh, Dark Sky, the, the weather uh, data company. Uh, they acquired um, a VR company called NextVR. We've talked a lot about where VR is going um, in the last little while. So um, I think this is a great acquisition. Great, obviously, for Canadian tech scene as well. Super, I'm always excited about that. And um, there you go. So yeah, every iPhone is now a payment terminal. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting to see how, you know, a company like Apple and even Google are just so diverse in their acquisitions and they're thinking about basically every single piece of a consumer's life. So whether that's mapping for directions, payments, uh, you know, and exchanging exchanging money, um, you know, to to AR and VR and advertising and privacy and all the different things that that they are you know just working on it's really 
I don't know. It's interesting. What, you know, one of the things like I'm an Apple, I'm an Apple user and, you know, I have Apple TV and a MacBook pro and an iPhone and an iPad and all those different things. And I love how things work together and make my life easier. And I think that, you know, that's really what, um, you know, a company like Apple is built on. Um, but you know, what you start to not love is the fact that every dollar is going to the same company. And sometimes like the little guys, it's harder for them to even have a chance, uh, to break in to a vertical. Um, and we live in such an entrepreneurial time that you, you want to encourage the underdog. I mean, you know, this right. Being part of a startup, you want to encourage, um, you know, that innovation, uh, and feed that. So it's getting harder and harder to think of new things and, and create and innovate whenever you've got big guys like buying up these smaller companies that can just overnight turn them into, you know, billion dollar uh, companies. But I think that it's interesting, all the different, all the different avenues that they're considering. And it'll be interesting to see how they, how they kind of uh, expand upon this within their own technology. So. Yeah, there you go. All right. All right. So our next story is United Airlines and obviously traveling right now is like a really weird, it's a weird thing, right? Most people that I talk to that have been traveling have said like the airports are empty. It was the easiest, you know, time that I had to get in and out of, um, you know, TSA and all those different things. Um, but you know, one thing that people are, are conscious of obviously is the safety measures that each airline is taking um, how are they, are they, you know, are they doing anything to help with social distancing at all on the plane? How clean are they? You know, all of these different things. So United Airlines has responded uh, in an effort to help answer all these questions with a, um, like an automated assistant through a chat bot that can answer all of their customers' questions, um, you know, about flying and sanitation and all of that. So you can text the word clean to fly UA. Um, and that just starts the chat service. So they can answer questions like, are the United clubs open? Um, are there any changes to in-flight services? How to prepare? What are, you know, air quality questions? Like, what are you guys doing? Um, so, you know, I think that's pretty interesting. Um, you know, in particular, obviously, there were times that I think there's been, you know, some airlines have required masks or like done, you know, not putting people in middle seats and others haven't. Uh, so it's just been like, I've heard different things and I know that the rules are constantly changing and they're figuring things out. Um, so United has been requiring customers to wear masks on the flights and now they're also going to have to wear them while waiting to board their flights. Um, and then they're also running what they call HEPA, which is high efficiency particulate air, which is like a filtration system. So they're doing this during, during the boarding, during in-flight and deboarding. So or deplaning, whatever you call it. Uh, so they are, you know, trying to keep the air, I think, as like sanitary and clean as possible, you know, filtering it. Um, and, you know, obviously business is declining right now for a lot of airlines. And so I think they're trying to do whatever they can on the, uh, the emotional, you know, advertising and connection and marketing that they're doing, you know, to make sure that the customers that are willing to fly or considering flights will feel safe and, and feel, you know, as, uh, as at ease as possible during all of this uncertainty. So, 
Um, I think this is good. You know, it's nice to be able to get some really quick automated answers and, and, um, and not have to like wait on hold or scroll through an FAQ page. So I think this is, this is a good, uh, you know, this is a good feature that hopefully, you know, a lot of customers will be able to use and, and maybe United can, I don't know, keep some business going, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's a challenge, right? You and I both uh, typically travel a lot uh, and ha haven't gone anywhere, um, you know, during this time, really. Um, so it's been interesting. Um, <coughs> um, you know, it, it's, um, yeah, I hear the same stories from uh, people I know that have uh, taken trips that the airports are empty and, and uh the planes are, you know, in some ways, you know, safer than ever uh, from a cleanliness and health point of view, whether it's air quality or sanitation or whatever the case might be, you know, certainly they're, they're doing everything I think that they can, um, you know, to try and help people feel more comfortable kind of coming back and feel safe. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know, you know, is it from a leisure perspective, you, you know, do you, is, does it matter? Do you want to do that? Right? Like, is it, um, I think from a business point of view, people need to travel and will travel, um, you know, to, to do what they need to do. But, you know, do you really want to sit on a plane, you know, for six hours, eight hours, you know, wearing a mask and, you know, is that, is that a, you know, is that an enjoyable experience for people? Um, I don't know. I, you know, at first glance, I, I'm going to say no, right? Like, but, you know, if that's what you need to do, that's what you need to do, I guess, right? To, to, to make this better. So, you know, I, I think the idea of using chatbots is something that's been growing across many different industries as a customer service tool. Um, I think the, the travel industry overall is one that's really embraced this technology in the same piece that you're referring to. Um, in April this year, the Department of Transportation has seen 25,000 complaints come in 15 times more than usual. Um, so, you know, there, there's certainly people asking lots of questions and trying to give them easy automated answers to those questions in, you know, with chatbots, I think is great. You know, WestJet, which is one of the big Canadian airlines up here, was the very first airline uh, to have a chatbot. Uh, apparently, they reported a 1,671% increase in support tickets coming through their Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp channels during the first few weeks of COVID. So, you know, obviously people are asking questions, people have you know, concerns. And so, you know, I don't know that you could potentially even staff a call center, you know, with this kind of volume, you know, especially just as a, as a peak uh, situation, right? Um, so I think having chatbots and, and deploying them in this way, I think is a, is a good way um, you know, to go about it. So I, I, I like that United's kind of on this and, and they're kind of looking at it as a holistic, you know, approach, not just customer service, but, you know, health and safety and all of it kind of all rolled together and kind of tying the responses to that. So good on them. All right. Uh, our final story. Um, so here's an interesting, uh, thing. So Amazon uh, apparently is in discussions to team up with Simon Properties Group, which is one of the world's biggest uh, commercial property real estate companies owning many, many shopping malls uh, around the world. Uh, and as we've heard, uh, especially during COVID, you know, see with the demise of Sears and JCPenney and 
potentially Nordstrom and many other of these big department store uh, retailers, um, that means that there's a lot of, uh, you know, sort of flagship space in these big shopping malls um, that, you know, may be unfilled. And here is Amazon, which is, you know, potentially experiencing some of their biggest growth ever during COVID with everybody at home ordering everything. Um, and, you know, always looking for how can they solve the last mile problem uh, of getting people what they want as fast as, as, you know, humanly possible. And so, you know, in terms of fulfillment centers, you know, if you can get the fulfillment center that has the goods in place closer to the communities where these people are, you know, that's, that's how you can go about solving this. And so they're, they're realizing, okay, as these big box, you know, department stores are failing and that space becomes available in the local shopping mall, maybe we turn that, that space into an Amazon fulfillment center. And so that's the discussion that's going on between Amazon and Simon right now to say, which are the logical spaces that are becoming available for us to have a local community fulfillment center kind of hub in these properties. And uh, I, think, I think it's a brilliant strategy. Uh, it's a great way to use the, the real estate. Um, you know, it may not be great for the potential future of the retail uh, sector necessarily because, you know, typically in a shopping mall environment, you know, for all the other retailers in there, having that big flagship is, is you know, sort of a draw that then drives tra additional you know, traffic to, you know, as people walk through the mall to the other stores. Um, so that certainly changes the dynamics of, of what's going on there. But I think from an Amazon point of view and from a Simon point of view, I think this is a no-brainer to me. Uh, of bringing these types of things together, um, um, so I, I love it. I think I think it makes perfect sense. What are your thoughts? I agree. I mean, there's a commercial real estate right now is just so readily available, and you know the future of that I think is going to be very interesting because I what I think is that a, a lot of businesses are trying to figure out how can we. Um, how can we avoid having the brick and mortar location altogether? Is that possible? Uh, because that's a large part of overhead for a lot of businesses. And if you're doing things like, you know, a store that you can just move, um, you know, more direct to consumer or, or just completely online, you know, is that more sustainable in the long term? Um, you know, not, not being able to open your doors for periods of time is not something that you can really you know, bank on. And so with Amazon, I think that it makes sense because they do need these fulfillment centers so that they can get things out easier. Uh, especially, you know, when you're thinking about like for us here in Atlanta, it's pretty easy. Like we can get things, you know, same day at the most, it's usually two days before we get something, but there's other areas where it takes a little longer to get, um, even if you're just like an hour or two outside of a larger city. So, you know, starting to use these fulfillment centers, I think is, is a great idea. And then in the longer term, what I could see Amazon doing is, is creating more pop-ups because there's a ton of brands and, you know, even smaller stores that have their own uh, spaces within Amazon, right? They use the, the Amazon platform uh, for their stores, you know, whether that's like a, like a new balance or whether that's a, you know, a smaller kind of a private label type of thing. So, you know, being able to maybe have those pop-ups once people are going out more to take part of that, you know, those fulfillment centers or, you know, just do something that is more of a, um, an experience, right, to get people out because it's not, it's something that's changing or it's seasonal. 
you know, th those are the kinds of things that they can do longer term probably. So, um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. And I, and I would assume that they're also probably getting this at a very large discount. <laughs> you got to think, right? You know, it, it reminds me a little bit up here. I don't know if you guys have these, uh, in, a, in the Atlanta area, but up here, you know, Ikea, uh, a couple of years ago, like we've got several of the sort of normal very very large ikea stores but then in the last couple of years we've started to get like these small ikea little fulfillment outlet places um where you go in and they're in, like in in smaller communities and you can kind of go in and they've got like their top 100 items and then it like there's an ordering desk where you can order from the catalog and a fulfillment center where you can pick up like all your stuff and whatever um, to kind of bring it more local right because not everybody can travel you know into the big city where yeah. the idea is right i know we were just talking about that um yeah. a few weeks ago i think yeah so that's kinda... we don't have that here in atlanta uh to the best of my knowledge but i think it's a great idea and that's what is allowing people to get to where they, you know, it's not, it's not a full inventory, but it's more of the most popular products, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there I you know go. that the Kmart, like my parents live in Greenville, South Carolina, which is not a huge city. I mean, it's not super rural, but um, they have transitioned the old Kmart into an Amazon fulfillment center. I mean, and that's just like a couple miles from their house. So it's interesting. My mom was saying, yeah, they're, you know, they're, they're transforming it for Amazon and it's going to be like, you can go in and get stuff, but it's also going to be like a fulfillment center. So I guess, you know, now they're saying, what else can we do that with? And it sounds like there's an abundance of these Sears and, and Penny stores that are available. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, the opportunities are there. Like you got to find ways to reinvent, right. The space and, um, yeah, good on good on Simon. And I think the other property owners, we'll see Westfield and, you know, Cadillac and all the other guys kind of jump in and take similar approaches. I mean, it just makes sense, right? Um, yeah. So, all right. That's our show for this week. Uh, you've been listening to episode 477 of Location Weekly. Four great stories in there. Um, and of course, we appreciate you tuning in every week. If you have ideas for stories, uh, please let us know, uh, you know, reach out to us, give us feedback, uh, um, in any way that you can. I also want to, uh, welcome, uh, our newest member of the LVMA that just joined, uh, in the last week. Uh, they're called Producio. They're a, uh, company based out of Paris, France, doing a lot of interesting work around privacy and location data. Um, check them out, uh, as well. Uh, you can find info on our, all our social channels. It was posted in the last couple of days and, uh, yeah, just, we thank you. Um, and we'll see you next week for 478. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.